Omar Epps is definitely older than Mike Tomlin. Oh, one year younger. Hey. Whoa. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is January 21st, 2020, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio by senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hello, Neil. Hello. How's it going? It's going well. How are you? (laughs) Good. Did you enjoy your long weekend? Yeah, it was fine. You know, watched some football. Sunday was just a pure celebration of all things football. (laughs) For sure. On the line from Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff. Hello, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. Did you enjoy the pure celebration of all things football on Sunday? No, I didn't. Just feeling like I had to say something different than Neil here. Did you bet on the Titans? Uh, Yeah. What? mm, I don't think I'm ready to talk about that on air, but maybe – uh, oh no! <laughs> these games weren't that much oh, fun. No, I was just joking. Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> but that's irrelevant. Real. That's irrelevant. Ooh. What I bet on, you know, that doesn't influence my enjoyment of the game too much. I don't think that's or true your at all. analysis. Yeah, or my analysis. <laughs> well, so so you apparently were surprised that the Chiefs beat the Titans by seven and a half points. A little. Oh. <laughs> Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, I wonder why you would frame it that yeah. way. That's such an odd. Yeah, way to you frame. know, just picking a number arbitrarily, <laughs> guys. You know, a number that uh, you know has a decimal. Uh, incidentally, I wasn't surprised that the Chiefs won, and I wasn't surprised that the Niners won. Nor was really anyone, I think, uh, compared to last week. It was interesting that this week, except for like ten minutes of the first quarter of the Chiefs and Titans game, really it went like people expected. And, During, and, and for about 30 seconds in that Packer game. Yeah, right. Yeah. The, the first 10 minutes of the, of the Titans game, I was like, Oh no, do we just not understand the Titans at all? Like they were up 10 nothing. And I was like, Oof. Yeah. Wow. But then the ship righted and. Sanity was restored yeah. to the universe. Patrick Mahomes was like, wait, I'm good. What's happening? Let's yeah. fix this. Well, now we have the Super Bowl. I'm so excited. I, I mean, these two teams should be fun right it should be a good game and it seems like the two best teams yeah and it also is like a nice contrast in um styles and strengths and weaknesses and they match up you know in interesting ways so i'm excited about it what about you jeff too much red that is true (laughs) yeah no no (laughs) not a fan it's interesting because it seemed like such a wacky nfl playoffs you know starting with the the Saints losing and then the Patriots losing and the Ravens losing. And then at the end of the day, this this is kind of a, you know, one seed versus the two seed. It's a very chalky Super Bowl. So who do you guys like in the Super Bowl? Let's make early predictions that we can refine well, Sarah, next gonna, week. First of all, we're going to probably break this down, yeah, in, in uh, painful detail uh, next week. And secondly, as part of that, I think a big a big aspect of it will be the fact that it is – Two of our Super Bowl draft teams going up against each other. That is you versus me. Very you know, I important. went I went head to head with Jeff in the fantasy championship, and now I'm going head to head with Sarah for the uh, Super Bowl draft. I know. I need to. I need to win. I'll, avenge, I'll avenge you, Jeff. <laughs> so you like the Chiefs? Is what you're saying? That, yeah. How could I not at this point? Right. I mean, that's like. Also, they're going to win. I obviously so. like the Niners. Suck it. Um, Jeff, who you got as the impartial observer? I like the Niners. I, um, Ooh. Nice. Look at that. When you have this... That's your West Coast bias showing. It is West Coast bias. Offensive powerhouse versus defensive powerhouse. 
I generally go with the defensive team. It's like the Seahawks Broncos Super Bowl. Not a lot of people were giving, even though the point spread was small, no one was really giving the, the Seahawks a fair shake. And then look what happened. They destroyed them. It seems like the defensive team usually comes up and it's not like the Niners are a bad offensive team don't we have a, a week to uh, process this I mean my opinion might change based on what I absolutely don't see this week well nothing happens I wanted your instant reactions we can we can adjust we can you know think about it come back to it next week that's the beauty of the two weeks before the Super Bowl there is no beauty in the two weeks before the Super no. Bowl I hate waiting there's Ugh. a Pro Bowl west <gasps> in there no no you, one you never want that I no. mean even Jim Nance could not summon the the enthusiasm to promote the Pro Bowl during that game. He tried. He, he tried. He tried, but it sounded yeah. very insincere. All right. Well, we'll come back to this next week. We can see if Jeff changes his mind. On today's show, we'll discuss the fallout and implications of the Astro sign-stealing scandal, and we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. It's been two months since former Houston pitcher Mike Fires, in an article in The Athletic, accused the Astros of using illegally placed high-speed cameras to steal signs from opposing teams in 2017. The signs, he said, were then communicated to batters at the plate by banging on a trash can. After the article, MLB launched a formal investigation into the Astros' practices, and the results have had repercussions around the league. Astros manager A.J. Hinch and general manager Jeff Luna were fired, along with managers Alex Cora of the Boston Red Sox and Carlos Beltran, newly of the Mets, who were both with Houston in 2017 at the time of the scandal. The Astros must also forfeit their first and second round picks for 2020 and 2021 and pay a $5 million fine. It does not appear that any current players will be punished as a result of MLB's investigation, despite the league specifying that the scheme was player-driven. This hasn't sat well with everyone in the baseball community, and rumors of foul play continue to spread across the internet. Dodgers pitcher Alex Wood took to Twitter to express his frustration, tweeting, I would rather face a player that was taking steroids than face a player that knew every pitch that was coming. Wood is not the first to make this comparison, and both players and members of the media have referred to this episode as the worst scandal to rock baseball since the steroids epidemic. Previously on this show, we've debated whether the scandal has been overblown. A 538 analysis showed that while the Astros did drastically decrease their strikeout rate in 2017, going from fourth worst in the majors to the best, the rate dropped both at home and on the road, where ostensibly they were operating without the illegal camera configuration. We also dove into MLB's long-cherished history of cheating and the ubiquity of sign stealing over the decades. There's a lot of questions wrapped up in this, and we have different opinions on the topic. I, I have been on record as not um, pro being, cheating. You can say it. I, pro cheating. Yes, I'm. I'm. Um, I've been on record that I'm not totally sure this even is a scandal, but. Jeff, why is it a scandal? Why are these punishments reasonable from MLB's perspective? I think they're reasonable because they broke a rule. I mean, we know the rule. We know the rule that you're allowed to steal, steal signs. That's okay. Um, if you're on second and you see what the catcher's holding down, you can relay that in. But if you use technology to aid that process, then you're breaking a rule. And and look what happened. We found evidence of that with the trash can thing. No one really disputes that. And three managers have been fired because of it. We we know to a certain extent that it was systemic and it was throughout the clubhouse and they did it and a lot of people were involved. And the GM has been fired because of it. I mean, it, it's certainly, 
you have a bunch of players on a team conspiring to break a rule actively that gives them a competitive advantage, that's a scandal. Three managers fired. There's 10% of the managers in baseball. That's a huge deal. I mean, that's, that's a, just and math. a GM. Yeah, that's just basic math. But especially managers on good teams, Mets aside, you know, two good teams, that's severe. That's a huge deal. So, Neil, over the past week, you've expressed feeling sort of conflicted over the scandal. What's driving that conflict for you? Well, so at first I was kind of in your camp uh, where I was pro just cheating. like, it's yes, pro cheating. No, just in terms of like feeling like it might be getting blown out of proportion or wondering how much it actually worked, how how much of an effect it actually had. Uh, but I think over the last week, I really did sort of get swept up in, you know, the the avalanche of coverage that there was around this where, um, for one thing, baseball in January in the middle of the NFL playoffs was the center of the <laughs> sports universe, which is unbelievable. That never happens. That never happens. I mean, baseball struggles to be the center of the sports universe when no other sports <laughs> yes, are going on. In like late July. <laughs> yeah. Like we're, we're, we're your only option and you're still not really paying that much attention to us. So I think that sort of made me question whether I was underplaying the severity of things or just the impact of this as a scandal. Uh, but now I, I legitimately have kind of started to come around and feel feel conflicted because First of all, it, it's an issue where you can't really use numbers, uh, which I, I feel most comfortable in that area where you're, <laughs> you you can look at the home road splits like you uh, alluded to, Sarah, and talk about the differences and things like that. But at the end of the day, I mean, we have spent a lot of time as sabermetric writers sort of hailing the Astros as this, you know, data heavy, analytical uh you know, team at the vanguard of how how teams. I mean, Ben Ryder wrote a whole book about it, uh, about the new way to win with the Astros. Now we're actually going to have to take a look in the mirror and sort of reassess. First of all, how great was this team? They're always going to be tainted by mm. this scandal, and all the players are going to be tainted. In some ways, the players are going to be tainted more now because of the decision that Rob Manfred made to not punish any of them, which was transparently just an effort to avoid picking a fight with the union. Yeah. Uh, the only player at the time that he went after was Carlos Beltran because he was no longer a player and could be sort of uh, dealt with and fired as, uh, or at least punished as as manager of the Mets. I For will- a team that, frankly, could use a little cheating help. <laughs> yes, I mean the Mets, the Mets be... missed an opportunity here. Well, so Chad Matlin, um, our our podcast uh, czar or whatever we're calling him, co-host of a Mets podcast with me on the side, uh, he argued nice, nice to me. There. Yeah, I know. Go listen to it. Panic City oh r- rate and review. It helps others find the program. Uh, but uh, <laughs> he was saying to me in the office before we started recording that the Mets should just go after Alex Cora as manager and Jeff Luno as general manager, just like straight up, you know. <laughs> Make it like a Kevin Durant situation where, you know, you know that you're not going to have them for a year, but then afterward they're, you know, let, let's start the bang that trash can, <laughs> LGM uh, 2021. <laughs> but anyway, my point on all of it was I feel conflicted because we have to reassess the Astros legacy. We have to reassess the legacy of certain players like Alex Bregman. I wrote about his breakout season that he was having. You know, he had elevated himself into MVP candidate conversations in a way that was somewhat unexpected, even for a player that had been sort of, you know, with his pedigree uh, and, and his uh, track record. And now you have to look back on that and be like, well, 
you know, what, what was driving that? You know, were there other things afoot? And I, there are always going to be those questions around members of that team uh, that we had sort of, you know, as stats-based writers had sort of taken their performance at face value because we're seeing numbers that we haven't seen before and therefore that must mean greatness. It never, I think, clicked for, certainly for me and probably for, you know, most of us that are writing about these things, that it could be due to a rampant systemic cheating scheme that, you know, that, that involved transmitting, uh, what the pitch would be before it happened, uh, to, to players using a trash can. The steroid scandal is going to be like a, a comparison point for this because I think also journalists of our era grew up watching, you know, the reporters of the steroid era sort of underplay that. And uh, the, the legacy of those reporters in that era of reporting on the game of baseball is always going to carry the fact that people turned a blind eye or didn't take it seriously enough when Mark McGuire had, you know, this, that or the other substance in his locker. Uh, there was like one guy that saw it and asked a question. He got shouted down and there were a bunch of uh, reporters that were sort of defending McGuire. And saying, like, why would you even suggest that there's something wrong with McGuire's performance that's not natural? And in retrospect, it looks really bad. It looks bad for for baseball journalists of that era. And so I don't know if we're overreacting now or if there's this sort of, like, desperation to now be on the right side of history at the slightest hint of any future scandal where we want to get this one right because other people got it wrong. I think part of it is that we don't know – how big this was there's still mystery to it it keeps developing it's like this drip drip you know we hear all these allegations but you know we know that the the garbage can is probably the the only one there's actually really solid evidence on and but we also know that that wouldn't really work on road games we know that wouldn't really work if the crowd was very loud in let's say a world series environment so it's reasonable to to um, suspect that the Astros had other systems or even the Red Sox had other systems in play. That Some of the more um, out there allegations, like the buzzers and the jerseys. Let's like hypothetically say that that is true. And they and Altuve. Beltran's you, niece said it. Right. So it sure. But I may, put quotation marks around niece. <laughs> thank you. And air quotes work well on um, podcasts. Uh, if Jose Altuve was really wearing a buzzer in his – Jersey. Would that go too far? Would that cross the line of cheating? Yes. Yes. I feel like even you, Sarah, would amar- would argue that that is a little too much. Uh, or I'm, no. not, I'm actually not sure I would. Well, but why? Why is it too much? Because the whole rule, I mean, the rule, as we discussed at the beginning of this, is not against the actual sign stealing. That's technically allowed. You can you can steal signs if you want, if you can get away. You just can't use electronic equipment. And to actually use electronic equipment on your person during a game and hide it underneath your, you know, underneath a jersey feels like, you know, even one step beyond that. But just to go back to one thing you said about the players being suspended, I actually, I sort of agree with that. And I don't think it's just that they want to avoid a fight with the union. I think it's pretty messy. I mean, it's not like baseball has subpoena power or anything like that. I mean, until Congress inevitably gets involved in this one. Um, <laughs> Which they already have. Hard. Bobby Rush, I yeah, think. They, 
they're dying to get involved in this one, um, <laughs> just like the Mitchell Report and all that, which I, well, I it's, can't. It, it's a good thing that they have nothing else going on to yeah, focus right. on. Yeah, no, I mean, it's not. It's, it's quiet times sports, politically. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's a dangerous scenario to start suspending guys because of something they did based on fuzzy evidence and fuzzy – uh, testimony and all this. So I, I do get why they're not suspending players. Can I ask a question? If you were hiding it and you did know that there was a tradition where they ripped off your jersey occasionally or you're taking your jersey off and there's reporters in the locker room, wouldn't you hide it in a way that it wasn't like visible? Like you're, you know, like a informant with the FBI and you got a big elaborate wire across your chest. I mean, like, I can't imagine that was what they had underneath that jersey. I actually basically almost lend you know more belief to the fact that Altuve just didn't want to take his shirt off for some reason because I, I don't think we should convict the guy just because he doesn't want to take his jersey off, and that automatically means he's wearing some elaborate, uh, elaborate electronic con- contraption underneath his shirt and that everyone's going to see it, and that's what he's thinking when he's rounding third. It, that doesn't feel very plausible to me either. But it was weird. It was a weird moment. I think it was weird. Noted it was definitely weird. It was, it was weird. Yeah, uh, he was and, asked and, about it. Yeah, he was asked about it and had like a weird answer about how he was shy and um, his wife uh, didn't his want wife, it, even yeah. though uh, some of the sleuths on Instagram last week found like a million Instagram pictures of him shirtless, you know, if he's so shy. Uh, and so there, it was perfect. There was just like just enough weirdness and unexplained like, uh, you know, kernels of doubt around his cover story in concert with the fake Carla, uh, Carlos Beltran family member, you know, putting that out there. And also Trevor Bauer and various others said, like, ooh, this is a rumor that I've been hearing for years around the game with the Astros, you know, about the buzzers. I guess my point is, if this was a, if this was a criminal trial and you were presenting evidence of a video of him not wanting to take his uniform off and the testimony of a bunch of disgruntled either former employees or rivals, competitors, or in the case of someone like Trevor Bauer, known Astros haters, it wouldn't hold up. I mean, it wouldn't hold up. We need more than that to like completely condemn Jose Altuve and, 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 take away everything he's accomplished in baseball or Alex Bregman. Now, it will be interesting if we see a huge drop in those guys' numbers this year. Again, that's probably not criminal quality evidence, but um, that would be interesting. It's interesting to me that you you talk about how much the Astros cheated, how much it helped them in, you know, did it actually help them in the World Series? Did the, the Red Sox continue their they're cheating into the 2018 World Series. But the question that MLB straight up refused to try to answer is how many teams are doing this? And that's the like the thing that is driving me the most crazy about this because that's impossible. Many other teams were doing it too. Otherwise, why didn't the former players on those teams blow the whistle the moment they weren't on the team? Why wouldn't you go to another team and be like, yeah, there's definitely cheating over there and have it be exposed? I just, there's so, I, I don't understand why baseball, no, I do understand why baseball did not want to actually look into this deeper because they don't want to know exactly how many teams are doing this. They don't want to have to punish everyone. They don't want the integrity of the game to be sullied for every single team. Even though that's part of the argument about why this isn't that big of a deal if every team is doing it. It's, there's no good answer from baseball's perspective to that. Because imagine 
imagine they say, oh, it turns out every team is cheating, so it's fine. Or if it turns out, which is what it is right now, only the good teams were cheating and they won World Series, so maybe the other teams should have cheated. I mean, there's no, there's no good answer. I mean, those teams won the World Series. That's bad enough on, uh, for me. Th- those are the teams that f- did the best. Just a, as a point of order, the Yankees also were fine for cheating, and they did not win the World Series. And now they're but they were in the crying playoffs, bloody murder over the Astros. <laughs> yeah, and they were in the playoffs. Okay, yeah. So, Sarah, like we know your position on this, that sign stealing is not cheating. And maybe even with the use of technology, it's not necessarily the worst crime someone could commit. Is that a fair summary of your... Yeah, I think think that's fair. In the past. So then, so we created this cheat metric of the the ways in which a scandal could affect, you know, the integrity of the game, uh, the opponent, a team itself, the league, the fans, individual players, all of these things and sort of tallied up based on the number of different sort of dimensions in which a scandal corrupts the game potentially. The highest score, I believe, was Bounty Gate. That got a 24.5 on our cheat scale. Tanking in the NBA got a 24. Uh, the Black Sox scandal in baseball got a 22. The Astros sign stealing got a 17.5 at the time, and that was when we were kind of underplaying it. But still, 17.5 is on the higher side. So what is it about this that is still just sort of not clicking for you as a scandal compared with maybe – something else that that a, a lot of the other scandals that have come up in sports. So stealing signs is part of the game. And that is where baseball has this constant problem here. You you are allowed, encouraged, well, maybe not by the other team, but certainly by your own, to steal a pitcher's signs. Well, there is a punishment built in for that. Whereas if you get caught stealing signns, you better be prepared for the next pitch coming at your head I guess. next one of, time you step one of, in. One of baseball's many unwritten rules, yes. which is also part of the thing that's driving me crazy about this whole thing. So that's that's a part of the game. It's always been a part of the game. But then there's this line that is a recent line no, and hadn't been a rule until 2017. Cheating is fine in this way, but you can't use technology to cheat, which I think is – a classic baseball thing. Like, no, no, you can cheat, but you can only cheat in the ways that they could have cheated in 1910. <laughs> and that, and, and, and we're going to ignore the century of progress in between, but you can still cheat because you can't do that. <laughs> I think the thing about the unwritten rules is, is really interesting in this context too, because it seems like baseball has these huge gaps in the rules as it pertains to the way in which technology could be used to gain a competitive advantage. I mean, they were not proactive. They were the opposite of proactive about trying to envision the ways in which teams would use this to try to gain an edge. And so a team like the Astros, known for being sort of pushing the boundary no matter what, sort of filled in those gaps. And I think maybe baseball relied on the unwritten rules of sort of like, well, this is unsportsmanlike, and and, and it's about how you play the game and all this kind of BS. Uh, and norms around the game to sort of enforce the gaps in the the written rules. The Astros were one of the first teams that just did not give a single crap about norms. They wanted to break norms. They were disruptors. They prided themselves on being that. I think that that stance from baseball is simply is simply just putting their head in the sand. I can sit in my house on my couch and watch a catcher deliver signs to the pitcher. I have never 
for once thought that, oh, teams aren't looking at that. They're just like refusing to look at. They're not they're not paying attention to signs. Of course they are. And in in many ways, legally, of course, they look at uh, footage from other catchers and try to catch on to signs. They would be it would be malpractice not to use those kinds. I mean, the game footage to check that. The question is then using it within the game. Baseball was ridiculous to not put in place some sort of rule against that forever ago if that was important to them. The difference here is that the traditional sign stealing, let's say a guy on second or something like that, relaying in, there was never a way, it was not effective. There was never a way to tell a hitter in real time which pitch is about to come. And because of that, it became a kind of non-issue. It became something you could really, you know, go to lengths to do and uh, force the other team to change its signs. But it was never going to ultimately give you that much of an edge. But now with technology, it's sort of changed. It, it has changed to the point where, in theory, you could be relaying this to a hitter in real time while he's about to face the next pitch. And all of a sudden, that changes everything. I mean, if you know that the next pitch, if you're, you have two strikes, so you know the next pitch is a curveball, and you're sitting on a fastball, that's that's going to change what happens on the field. That's going to enhance performance to a level that the old traditional sign stealing never had. So that's why I think the d- technology distinction is important. And also, frankly, I agree with you that they should have anticipated this, that they should have, you know, maybe got ahead of this problem beforehand well, when we had all this you know technology coming out in this century and and all these things and the smartphones and all this stuff that they could have probably come up with a way i mean really what is ultimately going to happen if this keeps going is that they're just going to put in you know a mic between the catcher or or something between the catcher and the the pitcher that relays the signs and that the traditional holding the fingers but you know behind the plate is going to go away because that's going to be the only way to stop it but that's that's sort of my point, too. There is a very easy remedy. There are lots of easy remedies, but one of them is that teams can change their signs. And that's exactly what the Nationals did because they believed that the Astros were stealing signs by whatever means. And so they changed their signs. That's how you do that. And that and that's that's how you've always been able to do that. But do you think that this is another aspect of baseball sort of? Creating a problem by turning a blind eye, not being better about anticipating the way in which changes to society and technology could infringe upon, you know, idealistic vision of f- how baseball should be played in the field of dreams outside Kevin Costner's house. Right. <laughs> uh, and by being willfully ignorant of that, they, they've now sort of said, well, I just am shocked that the Astros are doing this. The the you know, outsourcing it basically the the blame to some combination of the players and the and the front office, and then punishments to the front office. But baseball itself is sort of acting like the victim when, in fact, they sort of set up this situation where it was inevitable that this was going to happen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think if baseball had been serious in 2017 about really stopping electronic means of communication like that, they could have taken away the TV outside. Well, they did send a memo and say that, you know, guys, like like anyone reads memos, uh, but, but they were like, guys, you shouldn't do this. And the Astros probably like promptly uh, crumpled up that, you know, printout and threw it in the trash can that they then banged on to signal that a breaking <laughs> ball was coming. I mean – 
<laughs> MLB had the power to say, okay, here are the the ways communication can happen during a game. I mean, they could have set up the parameters for that if they were concerned about it happening again, which comes back to, I think the Astros right now are the scapegoat for anything MLB thinks is wrong with the game. The punishments handed down from MLB there were not just for sign stealing. The executive who yelled at female reporters, Brandon Taubman, he has been suspended for a year and like probably will never work in baseball again, right? And so this wasn't just a very targeted thing on sign stealing. It was a very targeted thing on the Astros. And we were in a place right there where everyone saw the Astros as the villain of MLB. And I think the league can hide behind this integrity of the game crap and and hand out these punishments and look really tough and and deal with this scandal while not really acknowledging their own part in the scandal and also not acknowledging that like it's a kind of a ridiculous proposition nfl doesn't just rely on signs anymore they use technology there's no reason baseball couldn't do that except that it is up its own ass and wants to keep this game pure as if it were still 1910 well what even is the integrity of a sport i mean i think that kind of uh, that can of worms has been opened by this as well and we had a few things on our cheat metric list where scandals where we felt like what they say when when they say use that phrase integrity of the game and what they mean which is more often than not kind of does this hurt our league's profitability and or the illusion that there is sort of fair play for everyone which i do think matters a lot to these leagues more so than ever before because they are entering partnerships with gambling companies and it's really important now for them to at least make people believe when they're betting on a game that there isn't some kind of other factor involved that could swing things. Don't even get me started on the way the leagues deal with gambling. Well, you're going to suspend a player for a year for betting on his team while he is injured and not playing with the team and has no information about what that team is doing, but you're still going to partner with a casino to like make money. I, I, I just can't. Frankly, the issue of the integrity of the game, who cares? I mean, who cares? I mean, this is a game that is just coming off a juiced ball scandal and uh, not that far removed from a rampant steroid scandal. Integrity's gone. I don't really care. I, I know they care. But the point is, that what's interesting about this scandal, which I don't think is true of steroids at all, and um, Certainly not true of a, you know, bounty gain. A number of these really unsavory scandals is that I do think this is actually great for baseball to go back to Neil saying we're talking about baseball the week of the Super Bowl. Um, it's big. And, and frankly, you know, we've said this on the show a lot. Having villains in a, in a league is, is a good thing. Having, having the Patriots as, you know, the evil empire and, and having, uh, baseball, having the Yankees back when they were, the original evil empire and all that is good for the sport to have a bad guy. Um, and I think there's more interest. That's such a Hollywood take. All publicity is good publicity. It's okay. <laughs> no, no, but what I said was, you know, the really unsavory stuff like the bounty gate, which was just gross, or steroids where you're doing things to your body and it's unhealthy and it's like a terrible uh, message to kids and all this. I mean, granted, this isn't the greatest message to kids either, but at least this is you know, sort of within the confines of of the rules a little bit. Um, and it's interesting, frankly. I, I think it's ultimately going to help the sport next year. I think that will, people will be tuning in for more interest. People will watch that first, you know, 
Astros Red Sox game or whatever it is that, you know, is getting a lot of the attention at the moment. It's going to be unbearable. But you made a good point about the juice ball thing, which I think is sort of funny, too, because this changes the attention away from the fact that MLB doesn't can like doesn't know whether the fundamental equipment to the game is the same. (laughs) (laughs) Like this is a classic MLB like, no, no, look over there. Look at that huge scandal. And Astros just played right into their hands. Yeah. Uh, but but also because MLB sort of did put its head in the sand about so much, it was very interesting to me that this – like basically people on Twitter sort of took up their pitchforks and uh, and torches and meted out the, the justice in the court of public opinion. I mean it's no different than a lot of the way that we deal with uh, situations where we feel like the the proper channels for justice have kind of failed. But this was the first time that's happened in baseball. The punishments from Major League Baseball, of course, they prevent these guys from being able to participate. But the punishments from like now the public perception around even guys that were not necessarily fully implicated in or, you know, directly implicated by name in the, the report are going to kind of follow them and the asterisk uh you know is going to be slapped on that 2017 astros team uh and and that to me is interesting it happened with steroids of course but it has sort of accelerated and been aided by you know social media now that basically vigilante ways of assessing a team you know and how fairly they played are going to become the new norm whenever there's a scandal Uh, and the quickness with which people jumped on the fake beltran nice tweet as you know a way to kind of explain why altuve didn't want to take off his shirt but also why he hit that home run off aroldis chapman in the alcs those things are going to, I think, become more and more commonplace now, especially when leagues themselves don't necessarily want to or feel like they can't properly adjudicate scandals in a way that satisfies the the masses. They're going to sort of take it into their own hands. I mean, what a ridiculous world we live in right now. And it's all playing out over Twitter. And we're listening to tweets from people who are allegedly Carlos Beltran's niece. And, and, ooh, my favorite was the, the guy on the unnamed Reddit user that months earlier, so like right as before the Astros even played in the World Series, uh, posted cryptically that, uh, they had a dream that the, uh, the Astros would be busted for having a complex, uh, signaling, you know, sign stealing scheme, uh, in, in terms of, you know, using technology via video and whatnot. But that was just a dream. That would never happen was what the post said. And it was crazy because that was people dug it up last week and basically called everything that happened. I think the most interesting thing is that you have is the Alex Wood tweet, not actually what he said, because I think what he said is actually a little misleading because no one is saying that this scandal let every Astros player know every pitch that was going to be thrown at him. I mean, we're talking about maybe off-speed pitches at home during certain games when they could hear the garbage can being... That, that's really all we know. So it, it's not really a fair statement. But the fact that we have players chiming in and we have you know the Trevor Bowers of the world and all these guys voicing their opinions while this is like an ongoing scandal is really interesting and really very 2020 problem. And we don't really... We haven't really faced it. We didn't have this. We didn't have Twitter during the steroids era. And who knows what would have come out if we did? You know, people would have been maybe lobbying 
accusations left and right saying i saw this this and this guy's locker room and this guy's juicing and this guy started juicing and all that so it's all very new and it's kind of hard to process well then so maybe this was the right thing for mlb to do to purely from a pr standpoint to look like they are squashing the scandal and i mean nobody is really mad at mlb except for me and and I suppose Carlos Beltran, <laughs> like and his niece, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's furious. But like, no. The the Twitter outrage isn't about MLB. It's about the Astros and the people involved in the scandal. I mean, the you know Alex Wood and the other players aren't aren't mad at the league. They're they're saying you know this was so terrible that they did this. So if MLB now can say, well, we solved it. It's it's over. It's done. It's good. Everyone's good. Let's play baseball. Like maybe that is the right thing for the league to do, even though it was hot garbage and did not actually fix anything. Yeah, maybe from their perspective. I mean, they they sort of did what they could legally, you know, uh, didn't offend the players union and uh, sort of cast all the blame on this team that everybody had already kind of turned on anyway. And then just sort of let the the rest of you know the judgment be be meted out uh by you know random fans on social media so is there is there anything that baseball should do about technology around the game should they incorporate more technology or should they keep pretending that that's not a thing and keep trying to play the the game in an old timey way is there a better path for them to go down I think just having the presence of more MLB narcs around the the uh, you know offices of teams might go a little bit of a way toward you know at sure. least the the very obvious things that should have already been policed like monitors in the yeah. freaking clubhouse hallway. But is that the right thing for MLB to do to to really cut down on where technology is in a stadium or should they be thinking about actually embracing technology and using it more in the game to keep it to make it a modern game? I think so. I mean, I think that's the only way to combat. In, in some ways it's a really easy fix. I mean, it's like a neighborhood that's being hit by a string of home robberies and yet no one locks their doors and no one has a security system. (laughs) I mean, it's like an easy fix. Yes. You don't blame the victim, but there's a very practical way to, to solve this, which is uh, one awareness telling, (laughs) telling all these teams, because there were probably some teams that were, you know, not as, you know, vigilant as as changing their signs as, as others that this is happening. And, you might want to think about how you're relaying the pitches, um, you know, to the between the pitcher and the catcher. Uh, and two is, yes, also using technology to ward off technology. You know, I don't know how that exactly works. We There's been talk of this, you know, idea of the mic between the, the pitcher and the catcher. That doesn't really change the, you know, history or the game. It's just the game sort of evolving into the 21st century. And why not? Other sports have done it to good effect. So did anyone change their mind as a course of this uh, robust debate? <laughs> I mean, I did in in the course of the robust debate plus like the the frenzy the feeding frenzy of the last <laughs> week where I do think that we do have maybe a responsibility more to try to figure out, you know, when there are aberrant changes to a player's statistics or anything like that be more critical of it. I mean, it's just a reminder of things that happened during the steroid era um, in that regard. So, yeah, I mean, taking 
I love to take stats, you know, that that are at least adjusted for, you know, the things that we like to adjust for at face value and be like, this guy is good stats, therefore he's a good player, mm-hmm. not therefore he's a good player plus he knows what pitch is coming, you know? So I think that that part has made me be a little bit um, conflicted, more yeah. so than when we a worked more. out our cheat metric. Sure, sure, sure. A little more wary of yeah. of what's going on. Jeff, what about you? Did you change your mind at all? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I think, as I said earlier, it'll be interesting to see, you know, to go back to what Neil was saying, you know, if we see a change in the numbers in terms of the Astros strikeout rate or, or anything like that, or really any team, um, uh, that will sort of in some ways be the worst thing that ever happened to baseball because I think that'll just, you know, pour more gasoline on the fire that it was evident that these guys were cheating to get ahead and that's probably the only reason they succeeded and that would call into question whether they really should still retain that World Series title and all that if, if we have evidence they did this during that year and it clearly was not just them being great baseball players with great eyes um, as we've seen through the sort of control evidence of what they've done post scandal um that would change things the the pressure on them is going to be uh just incredible i yeah it'll be it'll be bad altuve already trying to kind of psych himself up it's like oh it's no big deal we're going to be back in the world series next year yeah that would be amazing that would be an interesting story <laughs> it'd be terrible but, and for if baseball. they are then the whole thing it- then we look kind of stupid. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. That's yeah. that's actually really interesting. If they do make it back, will like first of all, they will still be villains. But will people start to walk back their criticisms? Almost certainly not. <laughs> that that is not in the nature of hot taking. No, to kind of walk things back. I mean, I think that's it. I mean, if this is the thing that is making them better at baseball, that becomes a huge level of scandal that is way bigger than it, it's like. No one ever thought that Tom Brady was a, you know, Hall of Fame greatest of all time quarterback because the, you know, air pressure in his football was a little <laughs> less. And that was what was making him good. No one ever thought that. But this actually does have potential to say this is why these guys weren't striking out and we're getting on base and we're, you know, scoring all these runs and, and hitting all these home runs and all that. It does have potential. I'm not I don't personally think, you know. That is the case. I think they're very good at baseball, and this is a small edge on the periphery. But, but who knows? I mean, that's why, that's why I think this it makes this season even more interesting. At five thirty-eight, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. When each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Neil, can you get us started? Sure. So uh, most of our rabbit holes are kind of lighthearted or at least heavily nerdy dives into the numbers. Uh, But, you know, we don't take them too seriously. But this one is a little bit of a departure from that because it involves the rate at which minority coaches are being hired or I should say not being hired in the NFL. Uh, So for a story last week, I looked at uh, the share of NFL games that were coached by non-white coaches. As recently as 2017, that number was 25%, not close to the share of 
games being played or at least players in the league that are uh, people of color. So that's 70%, including 59% African-American, but a little bit more in that direction and sort of spoke to the progress that people were kind of hoping had been made since the Rooney Rule got put into place in 2003. At that time, fewer than 10% of games were coached by uh, people of color. And uh, the Rooney Rule, for those not totally familiar with it, it requires that for a head coach opening, an NFL team must interview at least one minority candidate for the job. Not really that high of a bar, but there was evidence, academic research, some of which was published on our site, uh, that showed that even such a small change uh, and even controlling for changing social attitudes and, and, you know, kind of more progressive thoughts on hiring across all of society, uh, even if you control for that, the Rooney Rule did have its intended effect. It contributed to this increase in the hiring of minority coaches. However, since that 25% number in 2017, the number has basically gone down. It's fallen off a cliff. Uh, and so last season, only 12.5% of all games were coached by non-white coaches. And then looking ahead to 2020, it doesn't seem like anything's going to change barring some kind of coach firing with just four coaches of color in the league. So three black coaches and one Latino coach. Uh, and so w- when you kind of look at that, one of the things that a lot of people have been talking about is, first of all, what is causing this uh, and and what can we do about it? Why is there sort of you know this trend going in the wrong direction? And some of the things that sort of came up were, first of all, the hiring cycle of a couple of years ago was very notable for the fact that teams were trying to find a clone of Sean McVay, basically. Sean McVay, young, uh, offensive-minded coach, also white guy, you know, uh, and, and they hired a lot of coaches that uh, sort of fit that mold and checked off all of those boxes. Obviously, you don't have to be white to be an offensive coach, but uh, there's been research that shows that really more so than on the defensive side of the ball, the vast majority of offensive coordinators are white and, and basically coaches who come up in that pipeline uh, that, that black coaches don't really get as much of a chance to come up on the offensive side. If they are coming up, they're coming up on the defensive side of the ball. And some of that probably has to do with the longstanding bias against black quarterbacks, which now you kind of look around the league and look at the best quarterbacks. You see Lamar Jackson, you see Russell Wilson, you see Patrick Mahomes. You, uh, you don't have to sort of be like, can a black quarterback uh, succeed in the NFL? That question has been thoroughly repudiated uh if it you know as recently as the 80s Doug Williams was the first black quarterback to win the Super Bowl so it it had not been sort of destroyed at that time uh but I, I think the pipeline still takes a long time to kind of fill out but even beyond that you see there are coaches on the offensive side of the ball Eric Bieniemy uh, comes immediately to mind. Uh, he's the offensive coordinator for the Kansas City Chiefs, who uh, hasn't really gotten as much of a shot as you see some of the guys that did get hired, and all the guys hired, at least in terms of new coaches hired this uh, off season, were white. Uh, they were guys that were the former special teams coordinator and wide receivers coach for the Patriots. That's a lower position on the coaching totem pole than being an offensive coordinator for the best 
best offense, uh, arguably in the NFL, uh, in Eric Bieniemy. Increasingly, black coaches have sort of remarked in, in various interviews. They feel like they're going into interviews. They don't really have a shot at getting the job. They're not getting a fair shot. Uh, and that the Rooney rule, there, it's almost encouraged this, um, this trend towards sham interviews, interviews to kind of check off the box, make sure you're compliant with the rule, but not the, the owners have kind of already made up their mind about who they want as a coach uh, beforehand, even before talking to um, any of the candidates that they bring in to interview. And so I think it's time to start rethinking how the process works. People have, have uh, suggested that the Rooney Rule should not just apply to head coaches. It should apply to coordinators, too, at the very least, and, and even positions down the, the chain uh, of coaches. But there's also a lot of nepotism in terms of who gets to be coaches. Kyle Shanahan, great coach. He's led the 49ers to the Super Bowl. But his father is Mike Shanahan. And I don't know that he would necessarily have gotten the same shot to kind of prove himself as a coach. And he has proven himself, uh, but without his dad, you know, being who he was. So there's a lot to kind of dig into. Uh, but I wanted to open it up for conversation with you guys because it is sort of it's a very alarming trend over the past few years. And it eats away uh, at, at whatever illusions that we have at the NFL being sort of a meritocracy in, in terms of who gets to coach and who gets to move up in front offices and let alone ownership. It doesn't seem like people are getting a fair shot. Yeah, I was struck by in your story, Neil, the share of players who are non-white is is seventy percent, and that and that just was like, well, then what is going on here? What is blocking those players from becoming head coaches? But you and one of our colleagues made a really good point that head coaches don't come from the playing ranks right now. A lot of the recent crop of head coaches, of, of first-time head coaches, were never players in the NFL level or, or weren't for very long. They were they came up through the assistant ranks from the beginning. And that like that sort of made me look at things completely differently because, yeah, it's not like, okay, you play the game and then – Which is know, what we assume. Right, and you were good or not, but you had that kind of coaching. that You know, that happens in baseball where, you know – Somewhat a catcher often is like, oh yeah, that guy will be a great coach, and then he goes and coaches in the minor leagues, and then becomes a major league coach. And I sort of thought the same path held true in the NFL, and it really doesn't at all. And so, looking at the share of of players as a pipeline to coaching is is wrong. I think it's still important to look at the share of players and the disparity of the people managing those players, the, that they don't look like the players they're managing. And that, that is something I think the league needs to, needs to grapple with a little bit more than they actually are. I sort of think um, what's happening right now is really goes down to what, what you said in there uh, specifically about the offense-defense thing, whereas teams aren't really hiring defensive-minded coaches. That's just not you know in vogue at the moment. With regards to Biennemi, um, his team's still playing, which is another problem that sort of uncovers with the hiring cycles. Whereas, you know, you're almost punished from getting these job interviews and these job opportunities by having a team that's still on the field. Like, really, one thing you could do, which would be a small fix in the case of the enemy, again, you know, this isn't going to change a ton, is open up the hiring window 
after the Super Bowl, for instance, that that would help on a on a you know sort of micro level. You know, Ron Rivera was let go as a favor earlier in the season so that he would have time to get on this first wave of interviews and get a job. While the Cowboys like held on to Jason Garrett to like leave him out of any of the, the bigger problem is that a lot of you know the most successful black coaches, the Tony Dungies, the Mike Tomlins all come from the defensive ranks. And I think the bigger problem is not having, you know, and and this is really more systemic to football at every level. This goes to high school, this goes to college and all that is that um, a lot of, you know, if you're African-American, you get pushed into defense and that becomes your thing and not getting opportunities on offense. So I wonder almost one small fix would be, um, you know, do we need like a Rooney rule type thing for offensive coordinators too? Why is it just for head coaches? But I don't think the Rooney Rule also was ever – I don't think anyone ever perceived it to be some you know, universal cure-all to systemic <laughs> racism in the sport that goes up and down all ranks. You know, There's no black ownership. Yeah. yeah. I mean that, that's a bigger problem to me to begin with. There's only one – I think maybe two um, non-white owners in Shad Khan and, and the new uh, Bills owner. There, there's no black owners in the league and, and I think that that is – would be a, a good start also. But I think, you know, the problem goes beyond the NFL. It goes to really every level of organized football. There's clear pipelines where these guys come up. Um, and right now, if you're not, don't have experience playing quarterback or you don't have experience being an offensive coordinator or a play caller, you're not going to get an NFL job. And that's really what we're seeing right now. Unless, of course, your father is a coach. And that, and that, the, the nepotism thing really got to me on Sunday when Joe Buck was talking about Kyle Shanahan having football in his DNA. And like that kind of framing around he got a job because of who his dad was is problematic for the sport. And I don't begrudge him that. And I also think in lots of professions, kids follow in the footsteps of their parents. Like we wouldn't say, uh, you know, a kid of a journalist shouldn't go into journalism. Actually, I would tell a kid of a journalist yeah, not to go into journalism. Advice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's just, just good advice. Listen, take it from me, kids. But to automatically assume that those guys are better suited for NFL coaching jobs at any level is just it's it's bad. It's bad because you are denying someone else a possible job. And not just minority coaches, every coach. And so that like it just it builds on on that. And so you have, you know, Belichick's sons coaching for the Patriots and, you know, the whole family of Ryan's and Schottenheimer's and all of these guys who who got where they were, at least partially on their father's name. And then you have these other guys who aren't even getting interviews for jobs. And that does lead to this to this diversity problem. And I would argue that if you want to try to say, well, the best person should get the job no matter what color. Okay, but then no matter who their dad is, too, right? You have to have that from both directions if you're going to make that argument. I think it does, like, to your point, Jeff, it does come back to the ownership and the front offices being so heavily white and that those like the relationship between the coach and the the GM slash owner is of paramount um, importance, and it and it's not really 
it's not always meritocratic. E- even if it's unconscious bias, these owners tend to gravitate toward people that they feel socially comfortable with. And since they're all white, they tend to, you know, sort of give more of a chance. And, and that's the other thing is the chance to be able to fail and then try again, uh, is so crucial for, for these coaches. And, I believe there's only been one case where a team replaced an African-American head coach with another African-American head coach, and it was the Colts when Tony Dungy left and they brought in Jim Caldwell. That's the only time that's ever happened. And we have other evidence that in college, black coaches are consistently given less of a chance to kind of bounce back from disappointing years than their white counterparts. The Rooney Rule is designed to kind of uh, make sure people have equality of outcomes at the end of a long pipeline. But I think the bigger thing is making sure that there's an equality of opportunity at every step that sort of leads up to that, because I don't think it's a surprise that once you get to the end of it, if all of the other stops along the the road to becoming a head coach are sort of broken or horribly biased, we're acting surprised that people are not getting a fair chance at the end of the process. I mean, it has to happen sooner. That said, somebody like Biennemi deserve to be given more of a serious chance to become a head coach than some of these other people that were getting jobs from lower spots in the coaching universe. It was telling to me that um, the Vikings offensive coordinator, Kevin Stefanski, got a got a head coaching job. Uh, if I'm picking an offense, I'm not picking the Vikings offense as the better example but they were eliminated offense. from the playoffs, so that made him better for the yeah. job? I mean, I think there's a lot to Jeff's point about waiting to hire until after the playoffs are over so that there's not this weirdness there about, well, you have to wait until your team's eliminated. But then also, how do we feel about the Rooney rule being applied to coordinator positions? Would that help? It's still not like at the beginning of the pipeline, but it's at a spot where that is an an immediate filler roles for a head coaching job. It seems like a no-brainer to me. I think the bigger problem is that none of these guys start, I mean, with the few exceptions of some of these extreme nepotism cases, most of these guys are starting college football. And in fact, most of these guys are starting in the fringes of college football. You know, Joe Brady, who's 30 and now the offensive coordinator on the Panthers, was at William and Mary not long ago. I mean, this goes way down to the bottom of the ranks. You know, these guys come up and they're, you know, coaches in the MAC or FCS. And, and if you think the nepotism is bad in the NFL level, it's even worse down on those levels. So it, it goes to the core of like the coaching football universe. Um, so I, I don't know if there's a quick fix. I do think something like, why wouldn't you have the Rooney rule for all levels of, of coaching? Um, it seems like a good fix, but I don't think there's ever a scenario where the Rooney rule or anything like it is going to just immediately fix the problem in the NFL. We're going to have more stories about NFL coaching and the hiring process and the pipeline over the next couple of weeks on 538. So I'm sure this conversation will continue. All right. Well, that will do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and be sure to review and rate the show. It helps other people discover the program. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.